Well, praise God for that. It's already been a full morning, hasn't it? We should just go home. No, tease, tease. Hey, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be able to honor the Tap family and pray for them. Uh, you can open up your Bible to Esther. We're in the book of Esther still, Esther chapter 2. While you're doing that, uh, I'll share a, a story with you. When the World Trade Center crumbled to the ground on that dreadful day of September 11, 2001, more than 3,000 people were killed. But a few of those who were buried beneath the rubble miraculously survived the toppling of the towers. And two of those individuals were Will Hamino and John McLaughlin, a pair of Port Authority employees who had responded to the attacks. They were on the bottom floor when the South Tower began to fall. They raced to an elevator shaft and amazingly survived the 100-story collapse around them, but they were buried dozens of feet down in the midst of an array of rubble. Trapped without water, breathing smoke-filled air, both Will and John had little hope of survival. Yet as they lay there, pinned under the mountain of debris, something was stirring inside an accountant in Connecticut whom they'd never met. Dave Carnes had spent 23 years active duty in the Marine Corps. He was watching the scene play out on television, just like the rest of us. But more than just allowing it to trouble him, he decided to do something about it. He went to his boss, and he told him he wouldn't be back for a while. Dave went to a barber shop, asked for a high and tight haircut, stopped by his home to put on his military fatigues, hoping that his uniform would allow him access to the blocked-off area surrounding Ground Zero. He drove to Manhattan at speeds up to 120 miles an hour, and he arrived by late afternoon. And when rescue workers were being called off the rubble because of danger, Dave was allowed to stay because of the uh, clout and credential that came with his military uniform. He found another Marine nearby, and the two men walked the pile together, seeking to save anyone they could find. After an hour of searching, they heard the faint sound of tapping pipes and yelling. Will and John had been trapped for nine hours by that time, completely incapable of working themselves free. And in the midst of all this rubble, a Marine, who earlier in the morning had been working a spreadsheet in Connecticut, found them. And of the 20 people who were pulled from the rubble, Will and John were numbers 18 and 19. All because Dave Carnes left his job, faked his way into the despair and darkness of Ground Zero. It's an amazing story. Last week, we began this series we called Faith in Blank. And we all want to put our faith in God, but there are times when that is really hard to do. Each of us has times when we're desperate to understand how God's at work, but, but things just aren't clear. When difficult things happen, when life takes us by surprise, we all want to know what is God doing in this situation or in that circumstance. When we have an exciting opportunity, a chance to do something new, we all want some clarity. What does God want us to do? Where is God in the midst of this opportunity? And this series... Faith in Blank is going to help us in these moments. Over the next few weeks, we're studying this book of Esther, and maybe you're familiar with it. Maybe your first exposure to it was last Sunday. But, but it's a book about following God when you can't see Him. And, and very often, more often perhaps than we'd like to admit, that's our problem. We want to follow God, 
but we're just not sure where to find him. We can't clearly understand what we should do. And these are the kind of things we're going to be exploring in our study of Esther. And, and we're calling the series Faith in Blank. Each week we're going to fill in that blank with something we learn about God. And, and sometimes the very reason we can't see God at work is because we're too busy trying to manipulate circumstances, trying to, to work out things under our own power, our own abilities, and, and instead of waiting on God's guidance. And so too often we fill that blank in with ourselves, with uh, the things that, that we think ought to happen. And and this, so each week of this series, we're going to be finding out what we're really putting our faith in and what we should be putting our faith in. And so uh, following God, even when we can't see Him, means we need to put our faith in Him and not just in the things that we can see and manipulate. So last week, we looked at chapter 1 of Esther, and we saw that, that Queen Vashti had this royal position that was changed. We're going to see Esther assume a new position to become the queen, and we saw Xerxes, this king who, even though he's the king, is not as powerful as he perhaps thought. And so last week, we filled the blank in by putting our faith in God's process and not just in our position, because positions change, but God is always at work. And this morning, I want us to keep moving in the story of Esther. We're going to fill in that blank with something new that we'll learn today. So let's take a look at our passage, Esther chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury has subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. So let's just stop here. I'm sure that this plan appealed to King Xerxes quite a bit. I mean, this guy, you know. But, but I hope you could see how, how the author's really tongue-in-cheek, really undercutting our respect for Xerxes, really try to subtly let us know who's really in charge. And the, this chapter starts off with later. In fact, it's, it's quite a bit after the events of chapter 1. If you remember, chapter 1, Xerxes and his buddies are getting drunk and planning this military invasion of Greece. And, and now that invasion has come, it's gone, it was a total failure, and, and Xerxes was humiliated, and he decides to, to drown his sorrows in the same kind of thing that got him in trouble in the first place, trying to dominate women. So you know this plan is going to work out really well, right? But his plan is, is pretty ludicrous. It's, he's going to round up all the moderately attractive young women in the kingdom, which is a huge kingdom, and parade them in front of Xerxes for his pleasure until he finds the one he wants. And, and this is a terrible, terrible thing to do to these young women because they spend a year, we're going to see that in just a bit, they spend a year of their lives prepping for one night with this king. And in that night, really only a couple of things can happen. If the king doesn't like you, you're done. You know, you go back to a harem, but, but the B-team harem, not the A-team harem. And the king would never call for you again. So you're basically a widow at age 17 or 18 or whatever with, with no hope of a normal life. Now, if the king did like you, then you would also go back to a harem, the A-team harem, and the king might call for you occasionally. But what kind of life is that, right? But if you are the one, there's one in a thousand, you've got, uh, you win the favor of the king, then, then you would become the queen. So that's it. You basically got a one in a thousand chance of having some kind of decent and normal life. This is a terrible plan, a terrible way to treat young ladies. But, but the author does something kind of interesting here. The author starts telling the story about Xerxes and his plan, 
and then changes very abruptly. There's another story that's being juxtaposed here. So let's take a look at the next few verses, starting in verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shammai, the son of Kish, who'd been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he'd brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So there's this other story, this other person, and a person who really shouldn't be here. You know, we talked a little bit last week about the history leading up to the story of Esther, how the Jews were, were conquered for the, the disobedience to God, and how they were exiled, sent away to live as, as strangers in a strange land. And now, for the first time, we meet some Jews. And uh, we meet Mordecai, his cousin Esther, you know, her name in Hebrew there is Hadassah. And she's his younger cousin, she's an orphan, so he kind of adopts her, treats her as his own daughter. And the only thing we know about her right now is that she's young and she's pretty. But based on what we just read about the king's plan, we can tell what's going to happen next. Let's read the rest of the story, starting in verse 8. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and he moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden for her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, six with perfumes and cosmetics, and this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So Esther's chosen to be the queen. That's why they named a book after her. But I want us to notice some interesting things about her. It seems that her only real redeeming quality so far is her appearance. She's lovely, she catches the eye of these people in charge of rounding up binders full of women, you know, and and she catches the eye of Xerxes, so she's pretty. It makes sense that she would catch the eye of some guys, maybe turn some heads, but but what's fascinating and what's puzzled scholars of the book of Esther is why she catches the eye of God. You know, we read that Mordecai ordered her not to reveal the fact that she's Jewish to anyone. So she keeps her religion to herself. And that's really a problem, especially for Jews, because a big part of being Jewish meant being separated from pagan culture. And and here's Esther, who doesn't seem to follow any of the special food rules that Moses laid out. She, She marries a Gentile. She has sexual relations outside of marriage. Now, not her fault. 
You know, but these are all things that she does which are in contrast to God's laws and God's rules for the Jews. And in fact, if we're honest with ourselves, she really shouldn't even be here. You know, the Jews had been exiled before the events of this book, but, but before Xerxes, a previous king, had decreed that the Jews could go back home to Jerusalem, back to the place where Yahweh, the one true God, dwelled. And so the fact that Mordecai and Esther are here and not there tells us a little bit about the kind of Jews that they are. Now, none of these things are necessarily her fault. She's just doing what she's told to do. She's doing what she needs to do to survive. But either way you slice it, Esther suppresses her religious identity in order to fit in. Now, lucky for us, we've never done that, right? I know many of us are in work situations or school situations that make it very difficult for us to share our faith and live it out in ways. I worked in the public school system for many years, and, and there were plenty of times I knew exactly what a student needed and it wasn't a course that we offered, right? Or uh, times when uh, a parent, uh, I could tell they were really missing something, but I just didn't have the opportunity to share with them. So if you're in an environment where you're tempted to kind of cover up your faith or downplay it, I want you to keep listening this morning, because I think Esther can really be of benefit to us. And, and there's a real tension here. There's a real tension because Esther seems like a lovely person, but she's not a very good Jew, and yet God is clearly at work in her. God has her in this place at this time for a reason, and he's going to use her to do something really amazing. And if you want some proof that God's already at work in her, uh, notice three particular verses in this chapter. Verse 9, she pleased him and won his favor. Verse 15, Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. In verse 17, the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor. So three times, the author includes this idea that Esther won favor. She wins the favor of Haggai, this eunuch who's in charge. She wins the favor of other people in the royal court. But most importantly, she wins the favor of the king. She becomes that one in a thousand ladies who wins the favor of the king and is placed in this royal position as queen. So God's at work. Now, now her cousin Mordecai, he's also a Jew, but he's not a particularly good Jew. I mean, he's the one who advised her to, to hide her identity. And yet, I want us to notice what Mordecai does. Look at verse 19. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when, she, when he was bringing her up. Verse 21, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. And so, so in spite of everything, even after the king stole and abused one of his family members, Mordecai still saves this king's life. He risks his own life to report this conspiracy. That's, that's pretty amazing. And it's really, it turns out this is something to be taken seriously because 14 years after this, Xerxes did die at the hands of an assassin. And so, so Mordecai did the right thing, even though Xerxes is a very difficult person for him to have compassion on. So God's at work through Mordecai, just as he's at work through Esther, and just as he can be at work through you and through me, even when we're in really hard circumstances. So what are we to make of this? What, what lessons can we take away from these two ordinary people placed in very extraordinary circumstances? Well, first lesson might not be very obvious, but I think it's a really critical one. The first lesson is, is simply this, that God overflows with grace. 
God overflows with grace. His love and his ability to be at work in our lives is not dependent upon our performance. Even if Esther and Mordecai don't follow all the rules, God's at work in them. Uh, The September 11th story I share with you at the beginning of the message is a true story. Dave Carnes cut out of work. He lied. He sped at very dangerous speeds. He committed fraud. And yet God used him to save the lives of two people. And the same can be true for us. I mean, should we seek to obey God in everything? Yes, of course. Don't go home and say, oh, the pastor said we could lie and cheat and it's no big deal. No. But the fact remains that God's love is unconditional. His love for you and me does not depend on our performance. In fact, God loves us in spite of our performance. There's a passage in the book of Isaiah that says that even our most righteous acts are viewed like, like filthy rags to God. He doesn't need us to impress him. And, and, and now it doesn't mean we should stop trying to obey, but it does tell us something really wonderful about God. He doesn't need us to impress him. He doesn't need us to do anything for him. When we obey God, we very often reap the blessings, but we don't obey God because he needs us. He doesn't need anything. We obey God because uh, we obey him out of gratitude for what he's done, not because we're trying to get something from God or earn something from him, but just because of gratitude of what Jesus has done and out of recognition that a life that follows God is better than a life that rejects him. And so we're calling the study of Esther faith in blank. And remember, we're filling that blank in each week. This week, this part of the story of Esther encourages us, we don't have to have faith in our own performance. We put faith in God's placement and not in our performance. Faith in God's placement, but not in our performance. God can and will use you for his purposes regardless of your performance. Now again, we obey God, we pursue an intimate relationship with him because we want to, because we want to align ourselves more and more with God's purposes. But he could still use us where he's placed us, even if our performance is less than stellar. We're going to see later in the book, as Esther increases her dependence on God, that that God uses her even more and she's blessed as a result. But, But God can still use ordinary people like you and me. He has us placed where we are for a purpose, for his purpose. And part of what it means to put our faith in God's placement and not in our performance means we embrace God's grace. Maybe like Esther and Mordecai, you find yourself in a really hard place. And and maybe it's your fault. But maybe it's not. Maybe like Esther, you're a victim of circumstances you can't control. And in those hard places, it's how you respond that really makes the difference. Because I'm sure there were plenty of young women that were rounded up with Esther who were bitter and mournful, and turn this whole competition into a a miserable, backstabbing event. And truth be told, they had every right to feel that way. The way they were treated is not right. But God sometimes allows us to go to hard places, and, and how we respond will either move us closer to God or move us farther away. Esther won the favor of everyone in part because she embraced God's grace. She didn't go out of her way to look a certain way, to act a certain way. She didn't put faith in her own performance. She gave herself over to God's grace, and God used her to save thousands of people. So what's our purpose? Why does God have you in the place where you are? How do you respond to your placement in a way that embraces grace? Well, I think part of the answer to those questions lies in some advice 
from the prophet Jeremiah. When God's people first went into exile, the prophet Jeremiah encouraged them with a letter, a word from the Lord. And in his, in his letter, he offers some advice that at first sounds crazy. But I want us to look at the advice he gives to God's people who are placed in very hard circumstances beyond their control. Uh, the Lord tells them to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now understand, God's talking about people who are in exile, people who are forcibly taken from their homes, they watch their, their family members separated, they watch people die, they watch their homes, their businesses burned, and God tells them to seek the peace of the city where they're headed, where they're being placed. Well, that seems crazy, but guess what? That's the same word of encouragement that God gives us today. Put your faith in my placement. I have you exactly where I want you, he says. Even when you're in a hard place, where like Esther, you have to make hard decisions and sacrifices, God is still at work. God's placed you where you are. And you're the only one who can do what God has placed you there to do. Don't expect others to do it. You're the one. God wants to use you where he's placed you. Even when you feel out of place, you can still put your faith in God's placement. And Jesus himself models this for us. He, he knew, Jesus knew he was entering a world and a culture that hated him. If they didn't hate him, he really wouldn't have had any reason to be there. And yet Peter the Apostle tells us how, in spite of the fact that he faced opposition everywhere he went, that Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. And the passage goes on to tell us how Jesus is able to do this, how he could keep his faith in God's place, and it's because God was with him. Well, good news for us. God's with us, too. If we're followers of Jesus, the same Holy Spirit that guided Jesus lives and dwells with us and can guide us. So we can trust God's placement for us, and we can seek the peace of our own city, knowing that God is at work and he wants to be at work in us. So I want us to start thinking of ourselves in a new way. I want us to start thinking of ourselves like missionaries. You know, just as earlier, we heard from the Tap family. They serve the Lord far from home in a culture that very clearly needs to know God. And, and God has placed us in a culture that needs to know him. He's placed us right here. We're the vehicle that God wants to use to share his good news with this part of the world. Just as, as God is using the taps, just as God will use Esther and Mordecai to radically transform people in a foreign culture, God wants to use us the same way. So putting our faith in God's placement means we see ourselves like missionaries. We're on assignment from God to do his work right here. And there are a lot of different ways that we can live like missionaries right here. A lot of ways we can seek the peace and prosperity of this place. And first and foremost, our families. Everybody's got a family member that's dysfunctional. If you don't, you're probably the dysfunctional member of your family, right? Start there. Start with your family or, or all the places that each of us goes that are unique to us. Nobody else in the world has your exact job, has your exact schedule. Look at the place where God has placed you and start right there. Who are the people that you have the most contact with and the most influence over? Seek the peace and prosperity of those people. Each and every one of us has an opportunity to serve God, to make a difference right where we are. If you need some ideas, some help about that, we've got a lot of different ways that you can engage and seek the peace and prosperity of our city. We've talked a lot lately about our partnership with Blue Ridge. That's a great 
way to make an impact, a significant impact in our city with a very underprivileged part of the population. You need to sign up on your, your Blue Connection card and, and uh, so many easy ways to get involved. You can volunteer to read with a child. You can host after-school activities. Uh, you could serve the staff during conference times. You could uh, donate clothing, buy school supplies, so many ways to serve. But maybe you're like, oh, okay, well, that's not really my wheelhouse, okay, or, you know, you don't have bandwidth in your schedule for that, okay, but there's plenty of ways you can serve right here, right here at Trinity. Uh, you're already here on Sunday, and a lot of ways to get involved. You know, our impact team, that's our team of volunteers that make a huge difference each and every week, and, and one of the things we talk about with our volunteers sometimes, we talk about what we call it the principle of the chain, and we say that every volunteer makes a difference. Everybody's a link in a chain that connects unconnected people to Jesus. And, I mean, you think about... Uh, the worship folder that you have. You know, somebody volunteers to fold that worship folder and it goes into the hands of people who need to know Jesus or the the sermon notes that are stuffed in there give people a chance to write down things that could be a catalyst for transforming their lives. Uh, The connection cards that our ushers collect, they give people who are flying under the radar an opportunity to connect to the church and therefore connect to God in a significant way. Uh, greeters, our coffee corner, our worship team, they all link together to soften people's hearts and prepare them for hearing the word of God. So serving right here at Trinity, you be a valuable part of that chain and, and a valuable part of what it means to seek the peace and prosperity of our valley. It's so important. If you want to be a part of the impact team, it's super easy. You can go to the impact team kiosk in the coffee corner. It's bright blue. You can't miss it. You can sign up over there. You can sign up on your blue card. There's always opportunities on the blue card. Check those out. So many ways that you can make a difference right here in our city, in your family, in your workplace. But it all really starts with putting your faith in God's placement. If God has you in a place, even if it's a hard place, he has plans to use you there and he has plans to grow you as a result of that. As we wrap up our time together this morning, I want us to do something that's going to help us, I think, put our faith in God's placement. So if you've been around Trinity for a while, you know one of the things we've done here lately is we've we prayed for our valley, prayed for God to work in our valley, and we use a prayer that comes from the Bible, comes from the book of Habakkuk, and we've prayed this prayer as a way to just increase our vision for the valley, what God wants to do here. And so this morning, I want us to pray this prayer and as we pray, I want us to just reflect on our own placement here. You know, it's easy to, to pray big things and kind of assume that somebody else is going to do that. But each and every one of us, as we pray, we have our own placement. We have our own purpose here. And so uh, if we put our faith in God's placement of us here, then we're affirming that God wants to use us to do something here, to do his work. And so in a moment, we're going to pray this prayer that comes from Habakkuk. And as we do, we're praying not only that God would be at work in our valley, but that we would be his tools, that God would use us in this place where he has us to do his work. So so let's pray. You'll see this prayer on the screen. You can look at it, and, and then um, we'll pray together. <clears throat> God, we, we pray that this valley would be filled with the knowledge of your glory as the waters cover the sea. And, and that's a big and a bold prayer. We pray that every single person in our valley would be exposed to the gospel and we would come to a saving knowledge of you, Lord. We know that's a big, big job. We know there's so many people who are uh, blind to you, blind to the way you work in the world, blind to what you want to do, uh, that are, are uh, deceived about the truth, about who you are and how you came. 
and you died and you rose again. And, and, and we want that message to be the message that people see and hear when they see us. We want the gospel, the good news about Jesus to just permeate our valley. Like, like water, we want it to be uh, refreshing us. We want it to be bringing new life and new growth and renewal to the valley that we call home. And, and we know, Lord, that means it starts with us. It starts in our own hearts. We need that kind of renewal in our own lives. We want to be passionate for serving you, Lord. Pray that you would just keep us from being complacent, keep us from being uh, lazy, keep us from being uh, scared of what might happen, and, and just give us the courage that we need, the boldness that we need to, to live in a way that honors you, to live in a way that brings the knowledge of your glory to our valley. And, and we know as we pray this, Lord, we know we're opening ourselves up to be used by you. And that's what we want. We want to be used by you. We want to give you control. God, we're, we're tired of trying to manage everything on our own, of trying to, to live in some way that meets other people's expectations and all that, that, that comes with that, Lord. We want to just surrender our plans to your plans. We want to open ourselves up to be used by you, and, uh, and not just as a, as a church, yes, we want that, but as individuals. We don't want it to be somebody else's problem. We don't want it to be somebody else's task. We know you've placed us here. We know you've put us here for a purpose, and we want to live out that purpose in our lives. We don't want to be satisfied with less than what you have for us. And as a faith family, we know we've got the power of, of being united in, in who you are, being united in the way you've worked in our lives, and we want that unity to be a blessing to our valley. We want to partner with each other to be able to transform places like Blue Ridge, transform the places we work, the places we live. We want to transform our valley for the glory of God. And so we pray for your guidance in that, Lord. And also, Lord, I want to pray for people who are in really hard places. Uh, you, know, uh, you know what we need. And, and we have to confess that we don't always understand your placement. We don't always understand why, how you were at work. And yet uh, we see in this story of Esther, we see that you're a big, big God. You're at work in ways that we can't understand. And maybe someday we will and maybe someday we won't. But we want to put our faith in the fact that you've got us here. And just like Esther we want to embrace your grace. We don't want to try to just manage our own performance. We don't want to try to, to navigate our way without you, Lord. We want to just put our trust in you, put our faith in your placement. And, uh, and that frees us from the trap of trying to perform. It frees us from uh, serving you with anxiety and lets us serve you with joy, knowing that you've put us where you want us. And we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.